Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast. Episode 197, The Hunters Have Become the Hunt. Last time, by mid-October 1943, it was clear the Japanese were holding back from offensive operations, which included sending up zero fighters every time the black sheep attacked places like southern Bougainville, paving the way for a landing in the near future. The question was, why were they holding back? Like most answers, it was made up of several parts. First, Pappy and his men were flying confident, but more importantly, competently. They stayed with their strengths and focused on the enemy's weaknesses. Next, the planes themselves. As one of Pappy's men said of this time, the differences in planes was showing too. While the Zeros could outmaneuver us, it only took one decent shot to splash one into the water. The Corsair, on the other hand, he, the Japanese pilot, could smash on the F-4U seemingly forever, and it would still fly. Agreeing with this was one Masataka Akomiya, one of the best Japanese pilots during the war. But he was more blunt, saying these successive withdrawals from our air bases could be regarded as nothing less than major disasters. That it was because of the air war was being won by the Allies that they had to keep backing up. And adding on to that, the Japanese frontline forces were receiving less materiel, and their more experienced pilots were practically wiped out by 1943. Meanwhile, with every Allied victory, more and more planes, men, and other material kept coming from stateside. It was a numbers game, and that the U.S. had in spades. Again, the black sheep had finished their first tour, and their numbers were impressive. But now, it was time for some R&R. On October 25th, the squadron landed at Henderson Field on Guadalcanal, and then flew to the island of Espiritu Santo, just southeast of Guadalcanal. They were checked out by the doctors, and then it was to be on their way to Australia for drinking, girls, swimming, and whatever else they could get up to. And then came a moment, or event, that should be repeated, and never stopped. It was clear from the beginning of the Black Sheep that they were a, an odd group, to say the least. And their leader? He was the oddest of them all. So how did they become a cohesive group so quickly, and take out shocking numbers of enemy planes, with minimal losses? And it didn't stop there. The Black Sheep actually made flying over the enemy's airfields and the enemy not rising up to meet this threat normal. Hell, the plans were already in the works to keep chasing the enemy as they retreated up the Solomon Islands. What came next, as Boynton's numbers could not be denied, was a breakdown and study of what he did and how he did it, along with his men, and distill that into a booklet to be sent around the Pacific called The Combat Strategy and Tactics of Major Gregory Boynton, USMCR. It was made available on January 19, 1944. It started out with the Black Sheep's various victories and said that air combat was still evolving and for the moment, Pappy was at the front of that curve. Further, that the Japanese had not only not figured this out, but had yet to come up with counter-tactics. But it would be closer to the truth to say that the Japanese, at the beginning of the war, had, at that moment, an unmatched plane, years of experience of fighting in China, 
and their Western counterparts had drilled into them that the Japanese were horrible pilots, that it was their plane that deserved all the credit. But those myths were quickly dispelled with the many Japanese victories at the beginning of the war. Surely they were supermen. But now, in 1943, the black sheep had brought the swagger of American pilots back to the war. The booklet obviously mentioned the Corsair and all its abilities, but added on to that, or the use of the machine proper, was the next section. And it said that Pappy was getting it right with his offensive fighting rather than defensive action, and that the Corsair under Pappy was heading regularly deep into enemy territory, which threw off the Japanese sense of invincibility, or even relative safety, near their own bases. The world of air combat had been turned on its head. Another example of Pappy's influence, again, it took the brass a little longer to catch up, was his desire to take on the enemy fighter to fighter, rather than only escorting duties. Without having a bomber to protect, the Corsair and pilot could focus on the enemy and use Chenault's diving attacks to clear the skies of enemy fighters. And once that was done, the game was all but over. In would come the bombers. And this, like most things, was a part of a cycle. Japanese fighters were removed from the sky, or they refused to engage, which meant that each Allied bombing sortie was more successful than it could have been, which meant enemy landing strips were ruined, which had to be repaired before any of their planes could take off. And this would happen over and over as the black sheep helped take down or neutralize one Japanese airfield after another, ever pushing them back to Rabaul. The booklet stressed Pappy's aggressive fighting attitude, and the man himself summed it up like this, which is included in the booklet. Quote, There's no such thing as strategy in fighting up there. Gambler's guts would be better to describe what a pilot needs. Good aerial fighting is a gamble, and you've got to take the consequences if you lose. It's just like street fighting. If you hit the other guy first and you hit him hard, you'll probably strike the last blow. That he'll hit you back harder than you hit him is the chance you have to take. Now, this podcaster's favorite part was when one of Pappy's pilots described his mentality in air combat by comparing himself to a lion on the hunt. And obviously, he got this from Boynton. Quote, You see this in animals, such as lions or other predators, said First Lieutenant John Bolt. When they attack a grass eater, the other animals scatter in all directions, but the predator never changes targets. He selects his meal, and that is all there is to it. The others run all over the place, but the predator is not distracted. Call it a singleness of purpose, a dedication, a commitment. Another pappy trait, shocking as it may appear, was obsessing over details. The man who could not be bothered by doing squadron-level paperwork or focus on his family for too long had no problem with planning a sortie down to the smallest detail. Surely it was a labor of love, in this case combat, but it's nice to know that the man was capable of it. As history shows time and again, someone who is mistreated or thinks of themselves as mistreated when younger feels at home during a fight, for that is all they know. And being a grown-up now is determined to win this time. 
But another hurdle that Pappy had to get his men over was fearing the Zero. Yes, it was an incredible plane, and between that and how quickly and ruthlessly they conquered Southeast Asia, this instilled fear and respect for the Allies. But Boynton did not want his men fearing or respecting the Zero. Instead, the only emotion he tolerated was aggression, within a thought-out framework, of course. So he quickly poo-pooed the Zero to his men. He focused on its weaknesses and then focused on the attributes of the Corsair, and with that done, laid out a plan to win against the Zero. The men were calmed by this at first, and then became confident as they saw the tactics actually working out. Soon, contempt had replaced fear of the Zero and the Superman of the Japanese Empire. The same thing was playing out on the Eastern Front with the Russian and German soldiers, respectively. Victory after victory will do that. But going back to focusing on details, Pappy insisted that the men learn the Corsair inside and out, literally. He often had his men, and he did this himself, sit in the cockpit and just look at the numerous controls until they knew where everything was and what everything did. Then he would call out a control, and the man had to touch the appropriate control instantly. Next, he had them obsess over their oxygen, because if something went wrong there, then everything else just went out the window. And just to show how successful this learning of the Corsair was, soon Pappy's pilots were coming up with their own ideas on how to improve their beloved bird. One pilot in particular, again Lieutenant Bolt, was thinking of the rounds coming out of his Corsair. At the time, the Navy said that there was to be a 1 to 1 to 1 ratio of incendiary, air piercing, and tracer rounds belted into the guns. But Bolt thought he had a better idea, so he took a machine gun away from the camp. There, he fired the different types of rounds into oil drums to see which one would better ignite the barrel. Bolt played with the ratios and came up with a more lethal way to load the rounds into the guns, and this doctrine was added once the Navy approved this new way. Bolt later said, As a result of tests of the comparative destructive power of tracer, armor-piercing, and incendiary ammunition, our squadron changed its belting from 1 to 1 to 1 to 2 incendiary, 1 armor-piercing, 2 incendiary again, and then finally 1 tracer. In actual combat, we found this load much more satisfactory. The Black Sheep even offered up a segment of psychological warfare for the booklet. As they learned from Pappy, strafing an area that was not or could not be completely destroyed still brought benefits, almost equal to the actual destruction. Pappy pointed out to his men, look, you know what a 50 caliber round can do, even if it misses a target, but the noise and general destruction that it creates can induce intense fear in the enemy on the ground. If nothing else, it will let them know that you know where they are or where they work by shooting up that area. Fear will do the rest. Yet, it has to be said, for all of Pappy's individual teachings, the overall effect of demystifying the Japanese Zero was his greatest contribution, and this newfound confidence spread far and wide from Pappy's base camp. 
There were other pieces of advice in the booklet provided by the black sheep, like the best way to approach a zero, to always be alert, and if ever separated from a formation, to head back from home. Basically, live to fight another day. And to not allow a formation to be broken, as in, there is safety within the pack. Or as Pappy said, as long as they've remained in formation, all the zeros in the world won't touch you. Next was flying out of the sun whenever possible, and do not fire until you are close enough to cause real damage. Anything before that, and you're just giving away the element of surprise and wasting ammunition. And lastly, look out for a target that is just a little too tempting. Chances are there is another zero, or three, behind you. Yet the greatest irony of the black sheep success was that Boynton, not the most stable, patient person in the world, turned out to be a first-class teacher. The world has plenty of people who are great at something, but are terrible at passing this information on in a meaningful way. But here was Pappy, with all his trials and tribulations, taking the time to teach his men his way of fighting. And if someone did not get it right, Pappy would spend more time with that person one-on-one. As he said, if a boy can't fly well enough, it's up to me to teach him. And there was another bit of irony wrapped in the larger one. People like Pappy seek attention. But as he was already the squadron commander, he did not have to say or do anything stupid to get attention. The men were already looking at him and to him for guidance, which seemed to calm that part of him down. Thus, the more mature and nurturing part of Boynton came to the fore, and the results were incredible. And lastly, on this score, as the men treated him with respect, he returned it back to them, which is what everyone wants. In the end, Pappy treated them with respect and showed them how to do things that he wanted them to learn. And learning, in time, each man's ways allowed Boynton to cater his instructions on a more personal level. Basically, Pappy was doing for them what he had wished someone had done for him all those years ago. But besides taking care of his men, an aspect of leadership that cannot be denied, what really helped bring the pilots together was that Pappy was a leader in all ways, and it showed. New planes arrived, and the ground crew assumed at first that they would go to the commander, but Pappy never took a new plane. He always gave it to the men. Why? To improve their performance and their chance of survival. And Pappy later told a chaplain, when we take off, I always prayed, not for myself, but for those men, because they were black sheep squadron. And it was that same mindset that would cause Pappy to go ballistic if he saw divisions starting within the squadron. And no one in the squadron wanted to see Pappy upset. The downside was too great. Hell, even Pappy's late-night bull sessions were instructional. Instead of talking about sexual conquests, Pappy would go on about vigilance, turning as tight as possible, staying with the formation, and anything else he could think of to save lives. Yes, this caused the men to hear the same speech a few more times than they needed, but it was that repetition that saved lives, as more than a few men told Pappy after the war. Then there were the lighter moments. These men, far removed from what they knew and who they loved, would gather, drink, 
and sing songs. One ditty, the Yale University Wiffenpoof song, had the words changed by the black sheep. It was to lament their life and death struggle, but also to remind all who heard the song that these weren't just any pilots. They were the black sheep. It goes, We are poor little lambs who have lost our way. Ba ba ba. We are little black sheep who have gone astray. Ba ba ba. Gentlemen black sheep off on a spree, damned from here to Kahili. God have mercy on such as we. Ba ba ba. Another trick that Pappy threw at the squadron was to tell the concerned parties stateside that the black sheep would shoot down a zero for each cap the winning team of the World Series sent to his men. The hats were nice, and they were thought to bring good luck, but privately, Pappy wanted them because of their long bills. They would protect the wearer from the sun. Practical and motivative. As stated previously, Pappy had his executive, Captain Stanley Bailey, handle the paperwork, while another officer served as the unofficial counselor, just in case the men had a problem that was not air combat related. This allowed Boynton to focus on air combat and anything related. On the ground, the rules were fewer, which again made the men love Pappy and respect him all the more. In the end, to find out how effective a leader really is, talk to the people who served under him or her, and the vast majority of black sheep were thankful to have Pappy as their leader, and continually said so, even after the war. He was the first among equals, and his men responded with respect and a dedication to their job. Any one of those men would have died for another, and it showed when they engaged the enemy among the clouds. And yet, as Pappy and the black sheep headed to Australia for some much-deserved rest, the leader would find out that not all his enemies flew zeroes. <laughs> 